All right, good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. Sorry I was not here last week. I was in College Dale for Southeast Youth Conference, but it's good to be back, and I don't see any breaks in the class for I don't know how long, maybe Christmas, so or GYC, that'll be middle of December, so we should be consistent through that time, and maybe, but maybe we'll have finished Revelation by then, and um, I think we may be doing Hebrews next, don't quote me on that for sure, but I think that may be our next book to study. <clears throat> but we are in Revelation chapter 14. It's, we've covered the 144,000. We've covered the three angels' messages. We spent one week each on each of the angels, and that was very powerful. And now we're going to finish chapter 14. And if all goes well, I suspect that we'll get into chapter 15 today as well. So um, we're moving along here through the book of Revelation. So why don't we have a word of prayer to start our class, and then we'll get right into Revelation. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to study the book of Revelation, for the power that's contained in your word. Be with us now as we open up chapter 14. We study about the harvest. May we be part of the good harvest. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, so just as a reminder, for Revelation 14, you have the first five verses describe the 144,000. Verses 6 through 12 are the three angels' messages. Verse 13 is the special resurrection, and verses 14 through 20 is the harvest. And if you look at the outline of the chapter, the 144,000 is the group that we see. We, they're a special group of people. They're just like Jesus. And we see that the three angels' messages are three special messages that produce the 144,000. And the three angels' messages producing the 144,000 culminates in the harvest, which is here at the end of Revelation chapter 14. So we're going to study the harvest the harvest is pretty straightforward. It's only about six verses. So we will read through that now. And I'd like a volunteer to read Revelation 14, verses 14 through 16. So just as a reminder, if you have a question or a comment, raise your hand. We'll get the microphone to you. Um, and also, if you're going to read a verse, we'll get the microphone to you. So is there a volunteer to read Revelation 14, verses 14 through 16. Let's see, or I'll pick some, right down here. <clears throat> 14 through 16. <clears throat> okay. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud. Thrust in my sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat, it, and he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Okay, so here we see the picture of a harvest. And in verse 14, we see one sitting on, the white on a white cloud, and it's described as like unto the Son of Man. So who is this sitting on the cloud? 
So this is Jesus, and that's pretty straightforward. We, we can show several places in Scripture where Jesus is described as the Son of Man, and you can see that in Matthew 24, for example, or in other places. So here we see Jesus sitting on the cloud, and what does he have in his hand? He has a sharp sickle. So the idea of a sickle being in the hand of the Son of Man gives you the idea that Jesus is going to reap a harvest. He's going to put the sickle into that which is ripe. And of course in verse 14 you get the idea that he's ready to harvest his crop and then in verse 15 we see an angel who comes out and says thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for thee to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe so now and then verse 16 we see that Jesus actually thrusts in his sickle and he reaps the harvest of the earth now the question then is How do we know that the harvest is ripe? So the angel comes and tells the Son of Man sitting on the cloud, okay, you can thrust in your sickle, the harvest of the earth is ripe, but I'd like to see some examples from Scripture of what it means for the harvest to be ripe. So can you think of some places in Scripture that would describe a ripe harvest that would give the clue to the angel and to Christ that okay now it's now it's okay to thrust in your sickle and to reap the harvest of the earth so any thoughts on that okay well how about if we turn to James chapter 5 and by the way James chapter 5 is a good chapter to be studying right now. Um, I don't know if you've been watching the news. Um, But the first six verses are especially relevant to current events. But I'm going to look at, on on the basis of what we're studying today in Revelation 14, verses 7 and 8. I'd like a volunteer to read James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. So we have a volunteer back there. So the question that we're, before you read again, the question is, what is it that can allow the Son of Man to thrust in the sickle to reap a ripe harvest? So go ahead and read James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the earthly early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord dwelleth nigh. Okay. So James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. And again, this is probably a fairly familiar passage, but... Is there anything in this passage that talks about ripening of a harvest? Any comments about ripening of a harvest in this passage? 
Okay, so we have a comment down here, and I'll just repeat what he said. The ripening of the harvest is dependent upon something, and it's specifically dependent on the early and the latter rain. So we won't have a ripe harvest until there's an early and a latter rain. Now, the early rain, in its literal, most literal sense, fell at Pentecost, but um, there's more to it than that. We have a comment down here. So um, let's. So there's the early rain in its most literal sense fell at Pentecost, but there's a broader meaning to it than that. And then, of course, the latter rain. So, Dwayne, you have a comment. Deuteronomy 11 and 14 says that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season. Uh-huh. So Deuteronomy 11, 14. Okay. The so first rain... The, the first rain and the latter rain, uh -huh. that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thy oil. Right. Okay. So again, that's a passage that talks about the early rain and the latter rain that, that comes in due season. And <clears throat> what we see here is that the precious fruit of the earth, which is related to the harvest in Revelation chapter 14, will not be ripe until we see the early and the latter rain poured out. Now, the early rain was poured out at Pentecost, but if you study out in Scripture, I'm not going to take the time to do it today. The early rain is also connected to our personal conversion experience. So, in other words, the latter rain is not going to be poured out on a bunch of unconverted people who've never experienced the new birth with Christ. So, we have the new birth, we're born again, born of the Spirit with Christ, and when we reach a certain point of maturity, He will pour out the latter rain upon us. Now, if you study the rest of James chapter 5, there's an illustration of Elijah praying for rain, and it says, the heaven gave her rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. And Elijah, it says, was a man subject to like passions as we are. He's a type of God's last day people. He was translated without seeing death. And what did he do? He prayed for rain that he knew was promised until it came. And then when the rain came, the earth brought forth her fruit. So what's the illustration for us? If we are going to be God's last day people translated without seeing death, the 144,000, we pray for the latter rain until it comes so that the earth will bring forth its fruit. And we have a comment back there. And speak My, up so everyone can hear you. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to have Aaron do it. But in Joel 2.23... There's a direct reference to the former and the latter rain being poured out together. Right. And then in 29, you get the idea that it deals with the Holy Spirit. Right. But he, Joel chapter 2, verses 23 and 29, he was talking about the, the early and the latter rain being poured out and how it's God pouring out his spirit upon us. So that's a very good point. So what we see here is this concept of at some point the Son of Man is going to thrust in his sickle and reap the harvest of the earth when it is ripe. And we see from other passages in Scripture that the ripening of the harvest is dependent upon God's people receiving the power of the latter rain. Now, <clears throat> 
we've talked about the Holy Spirit being poured out. We're talking about the latter rain being poured out. And we've made an allusion to the fact that we need to earnestly be praying for that to be poured out upon us. I want to take a step back and say, let's just look at a harvest perhaps in its most basic sense. Um, when you have a harvest, it just doesn't get there automatically. There has to be a beginning to the harvest. So just thinking in an agricultural sense, in a farming sense, what is the beginning point for a harvest? What happens at the very beginning of a harvest? You plant the seeds that will eventually grow up into the plants that create your ripe harvest. So the question is, what is the seed that was planted in the very beginning that will enable a ripe harvest to be harvested when the latter rain is poured out? Any thoughts about any passages in Scripture that would describe a seed that was planted? Okay, how, how about, let's turn to John chapter 12. And this is a powerful concept. John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. And I'd like a volunteer to read John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. And so Jesus what is the seed that was planted in the beginning that will enable a ripe harvest to be harvested at the end. So we have a volunteer in the back. John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Okay. John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. What do we see here? Jesus says, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. What's this hour that he's talking about? He's talking about his death on the cross. And then he uses this illustration in the very next verse, which is clearly connected to verse 23, where he says, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But then he says, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So who's the corn of wheat in this illustration? The corn of wheat in this illustration is Jesus. He is the one who died. Now what is the result of Jesus dying? Right, it says, if the corn of wheat die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Now here is where we can have an understanding now of what a fully mature harvest that w will look like when the Son of Man thrusts in his sickle to reap a ripe harvest. Because the corn of wheat that fell into the ground and died represents Christ. And yet what Christ is saying in this illustration is that because of my death, there will be a harvest of fruit that will be fully ripened into the same characteristics that I demonstrated on the cross. So, 
Jesus is the seed. He was planted at his death on the cross. And the full maturation or the full maturity of this fruit comes at the harvest after the latter rain has been poured out on God's people. So here is a key point. We've all read in Christ, well many of us, I'm, I'm assuming many of us have read Christ's Object Lessons, page 69. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. This makes sense when you look at John chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 14. Jesus is the corn of wheat. He falls into the ground. He dies. Because of his death, his death brings forth much fruit. What is that much fruit? It's the fully ripened harvest in Revelation chapter 14 that comes after the latter rain has been poured out. So what does that tell you about the characteristics of the harvest? It tells you that the harvest that is fully ripe is a group of people that is just like Jesus, the 144,000. Now, when we study the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, we saw that they are without fault before the throne of God, and in their mouth is found no guile. Jesus has the very same characteristics. In 1 Peter 2, it says there's no guile in his mouth. Hebrews chapter 9 says that he was without spot, which is the same as without fault. So here's the key point. <clears throat> Jesus is the seed. We are the harvest. And if I might say, not to get off on this too much, but this is a further demonstration that Jesus took fallen human nature. Because the 144,000 have a fallen human nature, but they're just like Jesus. And Jesus was the seed that was planted that produces a mature harvest. So Right, so you get an orange from an orange, you get a, a, a crop of wheat from a seed of wheat. It's pretty straightforward. So if Jesus is the seed and the 144,000 is the harvest, there has to be a similarity there. So just making that point. So I see several hands going up. Um, and um, let's see, why don't we take a, the comment over here and then we will... Um, and speak up so everyone, because that's just for the recording. So Latter rain have something to do with the perfecting process, or is it as a result of the perfecting process that the latter rain falls? That's a very good question. So the question is, is the latter rain part of the perfecting process, or is it a result of the maturity of God's people? Well, <clears throat> if you think about the harvest, um, in the Jewish system, as Jesus would use this illustration, as the Bible writers use the illustration, the harvest would reach a point of maturity that when the, when the latter rain or the last rain of the season came, the, the harvest at that time was best equipped to receive that rain. So if the latter rain had fallen when it had just become a uh, uh, first the blade before it became the ear, then the full corn in the ear. If it was just the blade, the latter rain would not have then created, you know, the full fruit, so to speak. So the, the point is, is that the latter rain 
falls when God's people are ready to receive it. And when it falls, it gives the extra power that is needed to finish the work. So God will not give that power until his people are ready. But, so God's people need to be ready, and then God gives the extra power. And then, of course, God's people are only ready through the grace of God and through his power anyway. But that's, that's a very important question. I'm glad you asked that. So, so what we see then is that Jesus is the seed. He's the corn of wheat that fell into the ground. And you remember the illustration. You have first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. And hopefully we're getting close to the time that we have the full corn in the ear. The latter rain pours out and we'll have the harvest. So that's, that's the ripening of the true harvest. And we see um, the characteristics of God's people in the harvest. We see how the 144,000, the three angels' messages, and the ripening of the righteous harvest all go hand in hand. So now, there's also another harvest. And I'd like um, a volunteer to read verses 17 to 20. Revelation chapter 14, verses 17 through 20. We have a volunteer down here. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sickle, sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse's bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Okay. Now, here we see that not only is there a harvest of the righteous, there's also a harvest of the wicked. And Again, this is a concept, and basically you can read through, you see there's the harvest of the clusters of grapes of the earth that correlates with the wine of Babylon. You can study that out. And I don't want to spend too much time here. It's pretty straightforward, but the key is that as you have a ripening and maturity of the righteous, there's also a ripening and maturity of wickedness at the end of time. So you have people who have become just like Jesus. You also have people who have become, in essence, just like Satan. And those are the two options at the end of the judgment. And I might remind you that when the judgment began in 1844, when the seventh trumpet began to sound, when you study Daniel 7, it's a judgment on, on Babylon and so forth, that the final judgment, which begins in 1844 and goes to the end of time, is about the gathering of God's righteous as Satan is gathering his wicked people. So you have the gathering of two seeds, if you will. You have the seed of Christ and you have the seed of the devil. Jesus was the seed that was planted at his death and the the ripening of, of the cluster of grapes is the work of the devil, the wine of Babylon, and all of that. And so you have, in the judgment, you have the righteous and you have the wicked. And God is using 
his remnant people after 1844 to gather a harvest through the message of the three angels' messages to counter the work of Babylon, which is going to reach a full maturation just before the second coming. And all you have to do is watch the news to see that the devil is actively at work and gathering his harvest. And if you're paying attention to what God is doing, he's, in the last several years, as far as I can tell, he's also striking up a revival from the heart of the church with the young people. So there's something going on, and we see a gathering of the righteous and the wicked, and right now is the decision time for all of us. Who are we going to choose? We have a comment down here. <clears throat> so... Harvest of the righteous, harvest of the wicked at the end of Revelation 14. Comment, yes. The two classes of people that will be matured at the end of the world had their beginning by the preaching of present truth from God's Word. Mm. It's from God's Word that two classes of people are formed at the end, at the end of the world. And uh, for those of us who understand Advent history, including the Millerite time period, we begin to understand something about our own history at the end of the world. That uh, there's, the history of the Millerites is being repeated in our own time period. And what right. that means is, is that when the churches refused the first angel's message in the Millerite time period, Sister White says they took a moral fall. Yeah. And Babylon, she says, has not yet completely fallen on Great Controversy, page 389, but it's a, it's a progressive movement yeah. that will reach its maturity at the end of the world. But my point is this, that the two classes are not separated and made into two except by the preaching of present truth. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thank you for that. So I want to move to Revelation 15 now, and I doubt we're going to finish Revelation 15 today. It's, we've got 14 minutes, so I don't know. It's eight verses. But there's a lot in Revelation 15, so we'll at least get started on it. And um, let's see. Um, I'll just go ahead and start. We're going to start Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. Here we see in verse 1 it says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues for in them is filled up the wrath of God. So now we make a transition. We see 144,000 three angels messages, the great harvest. And then we see we're transitioning to the seven last plagues. Chapter 15 starts talking about the seven last plagues. And then we take a little diversion and then we'll come back in chapter 16. But we see that in the seven last plagues is filled up the wrath of God. And just a reminder that um, God can be active in the process of destruction of the wicked when he wants to be. And some people sometimes have a problem with that concept. But here it is in scripture again. So here we have seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now, if you study the concept, and we'll get to chapter 16 where you have the seven last plagues, <clears throat> the seven last plagues is the culmination of the seventh trumpet or the third woe of Revelation. So you have the three woes, fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets, and um, third woe, seventh trumpet culminates in the, seven la in the seven last plagues because 
as you recall, the first four trumpets are a judgment on Western Rome. Fifth and sixth trumpets are a judgment on Eastern Rome. Seventh trumpet is a judgment on Papal Rome. And Papal Rome receives the outpouring of the seven last plagues. They receive the wrath of God. Now, verses 2 through 4, I'd like a volunteer to read Revelation chapter 15, verses 2 through 4. It's, so the question is, where do you get the, the idea that the seventh trumpet is a judgment or a plague on papal room? Again, it's um, looking at the timing. And if you'd been in the class earlier, and that's fine to ask the question. If you look at the history, the first four trumpets cover the time period up to 476 A.D. with the fall of Western Rome. The fifth and sixth trumpets cover up to the time period of the fall of Eastern Rome, and it concludes with a Bible prophecy that ends on August 11, 1840. Then if you look at the seventh trumpet, it begins to sound when the temple of God is open in heaven and you see the Ark of His Testament. That's October 22, 1844. So the seventh trumpet begins to sound on October 22, 1844. That's the beginning of the judgment. And if you study the concept of the judgment, so here's the point. The seventh trumpet points us to the time of the beginning of the judgment in October 22, 1844. Daniel 7, if you study that, clearly shows that that's the time when the papal beast is thrown into the lake of fire. So the judgment is about a judgment on papal Rome who persecuted God's people during the 1260 years. Well, that's talking about the forces that join with papal room. So anyway, we can, we can talk more about that after class. I'd be happy to talk to you about that. But as we see here then, so we see the seven last plagues. And that is the culmination of the seventh trumpet during the timing of the seventh trumpet. And so then in verse 2, I'd like a volunteer to read verses 2 through 4 of Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15, 2 through 4. Um, back in the back there. Revelation 15, verses 2 through 4. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. Thank you very much. Now, all of a sudden we have a transition here and we see the righteous standing on the sea of glass singing the song of Moses the song of the Lamb. What does that have to do with the seven last plagues? We were talking about the seven last plagues, and all of a sudden we shift gears and we see the righteous standing on the sea of glass. What is the correlation? We have a comment down here. And this is probably where we're going to finish. So let's keep it short, and we're going to move quickly through this concept. It goes back uh, to the time of the experience of those who in verses... Uh, We talked about the harvest earlier, mm -hmm. and as the experience of the harvest brings about the latter rain, right. 
John here is looking back at those people that have just gone through that experience. Right. So it's, Revelation is written this way. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it looks backwards, forward. Mm -hmm. it, it's called past, present, and future right. in, the, in the book of Revelation. Right. So John here is taking us back now and he's allowing us to see the experience of the 144,000 as they've gone through the experience of the latter rain mm -hmm. and the time of trouble. And now he sees them standing on a sea of glass. Okay, very getting good. The victory. Thank you. So the comment is now we see the 144,000. They've passed through the experience of the latter rain. And there's a direct connection here with the, the seven last plagues because <clears throat> the 144,000 are described here in verses 2 through 4. How do I know that? Because this is the group of people who get the victory over the beast, his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name. And by the way, the beast, which represents papal Rome, is the entity that, ha that receives the outpouring of the seven last plagues. Who doesn't receive the seven last plagues? Those who receive, or those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over the mark of his name. Who is that? That's the 144,000. Now they sing a song. It's the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So these people are the people that pass through the outpouring of the seven last plagues and come out the other side victorious. And because of that, they are able to sing a song that no one else can sing. And it's the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now what's interesting in verse 4 the things that they say sound very much like the three angels' messages, specifically the first angel's message. They say, who shall not fear thee? Who shall not glorify thy name? That's the first angel's message. Fear God, give glory to him. They also say, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. So there again, you see the, the concept of the three angels' messages in the song that they're singing. But what does... Moses, the servant of God, and the Lamb have in common with the 144,000 who sing this song at the end of time. For the sake of time, I'll just point out that in Exodus chapter 32, Moses said, because God said, I'm, the, the, these people are wicked, I'm going to blot them out. And Moses says, your name will be dishonored among the heathen if you do so. Rather, blot me out from existence, destroy me eternally, so they can be saved. And then, <clears throat> Jesus on the cross, he was willing to die not just for three days, but for all eternity to bring honor and glory to his Father's name and for the salvation of us. So the 144,000, their experience during the seven last plagues, their concern isn't so much, am I saved or am I not saved? They're more concerned, am I going to dishonor the name of God when his name is on the line before the entire universe? Is there anything in my life that as I'm a representative of Christ here on this earth, that would prove God wrong in this great controversy battle. And of course, because they have that same spirit of Moses, they have the same spirit of Christ, they 
can sing the song of Moses, they can sing the song of the Lamb, and they can be counted among the 144,000 because their concern isn't so much, am I saved or am I not saved? Their concern is, is my life bringing honor and glory to God's name? And so... Right. So they're more concerned about glorifying God's name than their own personal salvation. As important as our personal salvation is, and we work for the salvation of the souls around us, and of course, that's giving honor and glory to God's name by working for the salvation of those around us. So uh, we shouldn't stop being evangelistic by any means because God has given glory through that work. But the point is, is that we would, our, our experience in life would probably be very different if instead of having the mentality is this a salvational issue? Rather, we were most concerned about living a life because we love Jesus so much that brings honor and glory to his name. So it's not like we have a checklist like, okay, this is okay, and uh, I'm not, this is a salvational issue, is it not? It's like, no, I'm going to live my life well above the bar because I want to bring honor and glory, glory to God's name. I'm not going to just try to scrape by and get a C- and get into the pearly gates. That's not the type of life that the 144,000 are going to be living. And because of them, because God has a group of people that have this kind of, a, of an experience, he is justified to pour out the seven last plagues on the beast. Because the beast is the entire opposite. The beast has lived to itself, for itself, has received the mark of the beast and all of that. And so... Here you have an entire contrast during the judgment. God's people live completely for God. They're not wondering, or they're not checking as uh, a salvationist. It's not. They're like, no, I'm going to live to honor and glorify God. And then you have the other side, which lives completely for pleasure and for themselves, doesn't care about God. And when you have the complete contrast, then God is justified or vindicated to start pouring out the seven last plagues on the wicked. Now we're going to finish chapter 15 next week, but there's a quote from the Spirit of Prophecy that talks about how the righteous lead Satan into the land of forgetfulness as the seven last plagues are being poured out. He's the scapegoat being led away. So during the seven last plagues, the 144,000 have a work to do. It's a work of leading Satan into the land of forgetfulness. So the seven last plagues are being poured out. The 144,000 are going through Jacob's time of trouble. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. What is it that enables the 144,000 to lead the scapegoat into the land of forgetfulness? So let's keep studying and let's be among the faithful that have that experience.